we are dealing with covenants, and this idea is, is that we have three different pastors over three different campuses, um, and we are rotating around so that we all get to talk to each campus about a specific topic. Uh, I know Pastor Travis last week spoke to you guys. Today I'll speak to you, and then next week Scott will be here to teach you one more time. So I get the privilege of talking about a portion of our covenant. Our covenant is broken up into four parts. So we're going to hit the first three, and then in a few weeks we're going to all get together down at Willamette Park for a church-wide uh, celebration as we hit the last point. So I want to remind us of what our mission is as a church. Our church's mission is engaging people disconnected from God so that they delight themselves in Him through Jesus. So this is our goal. This is our purpose. This is our mission. And pretty much every year as we finish out the summer and get ready for the school year, we remind ourselves of our mission. And you know, the last year and a half doing our mission has been hard. It's been difficult. There's been lots of things getting in the way whether it be having to quarantine or whether it's masks or vaccine debates or elections or racial issues. There's been all sorts of things that have gotten in the way of us doing our mission. No more so than in our relationships with each other. As a matter of fact, I'd say if you were to go back and like label the last you know, 16 months, we would say stress or strife or you know, maybe you know, some kind of tension between us. So we've decided that we're going to look at this covenant that our church has, which is a written document that explains how we are to interact with each other. This isn't a make us feel bad that we're not doing it, but it's to stir us up and go, there is a better way. And what's amazing about our church covenant is it's just not based on what us pastors and staff and elders think. It's actually straight out of the Bible. So today what we're going to do is I'm going to introduce you guys to this portion of the covenant, and then I'm going to take you to a place in the Bible that speaks directly to it. So we're going to look at that. So here's the first part of this provision. So the, the, the part that we're covering today is the very first of the covenant, first part of the covenant. You guys got the second part first, but I'm sure you guys can follow along and get it. So here's the opening line of our church covenant. It says, we promise by God's grace and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, colon. So this is the overarching theme that we have to make sure we get before we move into anything else. So it starts with God's grace. Now we use that word grace for all sorts of things. But what it means when we talk about it in the Bible, it means God's free gift. This is God's free gift to us. So our, our covenant statement starts off that we promise, so we're making an agreement because of God's grace. See, God's grace is the door that opens up into everything else we're going to talk about. What Travis talked about last week, what Scott will talk about next week, and what I'm talking about here. This grace opens the door. And then the door just doesn't stay there and we have to walk through it. The door actually has someone come through it. And that someone is the Holy Spirit. Look what it says. It says, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. See, what I love about what the Bible teaches is the Bible doesn't say, okay, you're saved, now go work as hard as you can, and hopefully you can do it. It says you're saved, and God's going to come live in us and give us the power and the ability and the drive to then obey God. It's one of the sweetest deals ever, if you think about it. We're not left on our own hoping that we're going to be able to balance it out. Instead, we have the Spirit living in us, empowering us and strengthening us to do it. So this is the first thing we have to remember. We have to remember that this is the starting place for everything we're going to talk about. So one thing you're going to see today as we walk through this is that I'm going to come back to the gospel over and over and over again. 
Because the gospel is God's grace and his indwelling spirit living in us, giving us the ability to then do the things that he asked for us to do. And the only reason that can happen is because of what Jesus did on the cross. So, we promise by God's grace through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of sins and walking by faith in newness of life. So that's the actual statement we're going to look at today, to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, to repent of sin, and to walk in the newness of life. So this is our promise to each other. This is our promise that I am personally going to do these things, and when all of us do these things, it makes a community that resembles a community we'll be spending all of eternity in. See, remember, when we are buried with Christ and we are brought to new life, this new life should be on display, and it should be on display most clearly right here in this room. Kevin DeYoung, uh, a pastor from uh, the East Coast, says, the, the idea of the New Testament, the one sentence that summarizes what it means to live a life according to the New Testament is, be who you are. Now, when you hear that, some of you probably went, oh, wait a second. That sure sounds a lot like what the world teaches. Be who you are. As a matter of fact, our world teaches that all the time, right? Be true to yourself. Be true to who you think you are. And the world gets it almost right but misses it by a mile, right? We see this all the time. The world has a nugget of truth, but then perverts it. See, the world says, relax, you're born that way, or stop trying to be something you're not. See, the Bible says God wants us to be who we are, but that who we are is not who we are by nature. It's who we are by rebirth. See, God doesn't say, relax, you're born that way. He says, relax, you're born again this way. And that's the life that he wants us to live in. And as believers, all we're doing in this, this charge is to say, live the life that you have in you now. Be who you are. See, God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to embrace your true self, but it's your true self through grace, not through your nature, not through the way you've always been. So let's walk through this, uh, this, this covenant. The first thing it says is it says to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel. To live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel. We get this from Galatians 2.14 that says, When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Caiaphas, Cephas, I'm sorry, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So this is, an op this is when, when Paul confronts Peter. And Peter is not walking in a lifestyle that is in keeping with the gospel. And so Paul confronts him to his face. And there's, a, there's an interaction there. So this keeping in, truth, keeping in step with the truth of the gospel means we need to know how God relates to us. And we're going to jump around here at the beginning, but we're going to land in Romans 12 here in a minute. And so this how God relates to us has to be the foundation that we build off of. Because it's not about us getting ourselves to God. We'll never get there. It's a God came to us, and now we can have a relationship with him and then build off of that. So the first thing we see is how God relates to us, the gospel. The second thing we see, it says continually repenting of our sins. I'm going to use an old Puritan phrase for this, and this is the mortification of sin, which sounds way cool, um, a lot cooler than saying repenting. 
be a good band name. Christian, you should do a band called Mortification of Sin. We get this from Romans 8.13, which says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the spirit you, if in the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And so each of these passages is saying we must kill sin wherever we see it. Now this is not saying go find sin in somebody else. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the sin that is here. we got a lot more sin to deal with in us before we start worrying about the sin outside of us. And so this section deals with how do we relate to God and others. Because sin is never just about everybody around me. It's vertically first and foremost what's ironic is that sometimes when we sin we go well i didn't hurt anybody so it's really not that bad but if all sin is before god first and foremost it is that bad those sins that you have that you're like well no one got hurt still were sins that sent christ to the cross and so that that lets us see the severity of this and so this mortification this continually repenting of sins is not only horizontal with each other but vertical with our god So we've got keeping in truth with the gospel, mortification of sin, and the third part, walking in newness of life. We get this from Ephesians 4, 23, and it says, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So we've got, here's how God sees us. We've got, here's how we are to interact with others and with God. And then finally, this newness of life is all about how I view myself, how I relate to myself, how I understand who I am in Christ. And so these three all together are going to be our layout of where we're going today because these match up with the book of Romans, chapter 12. So we're going to go ahead and go there if you haven't gotten there already. So the first one, how God relates to us, is verse 1. How we relate to God and others is verse 2, 19 through 16. And then finally we'll finish up talking about ourselves starting in verse 3. See, Romans 12 is all about the newness of life. It's all about what it means to walk in this newness. But see, here's the problem. The problem is Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. Romans 1 through 11 is some of the headiest, most intense explanation of what it means to be a Christian. One author calls it the Himalayans of the Bible. It is the peaks from which everything makes sense. One of my favorite Uh, one of my favorite pastors, one of my favorite sermon preachers, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, did 255 sermons on the first 11 chapters of Romans. So there's no way I'm going to do this justice. But just to say simply, Romans 1 through 11 is the gospel. It's the explanation of the gospel. It's Paul making sure all of the possible objections to Jesus' death on the cross and what it means for us are explored and clarified and made sure we understand. And so this is where we start. So we start first and foremost from Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for his own glory, so that we can have a relationship with him. Romans 12 starts after that. 
It starts right after that. So we are to, to be like Paul. We're to bask in, we're to, to bathe in, dwell in the glories of the gospel. This is where we're to start. John Stott wrote, Only a vision of God's mercy will inspire us to present our bodies to him and allow him to transform us according to his will. And this is where we're at. So I encourage you, if you haven't ever read those first 11 chapters, go back and do it. It is intense, but it is some of the most glorifying and edifying bits of scripture. So we're going to now react to that. So let's start here in verse 1. This is how God relates to us. So this is how God sees us. Verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul starts right off. He says, I appeal to you therefore. The word therefore means because of everything that came before this. So Paul is saying, you need to go back and read Romans 1 through 11. But he also summarizes it in chapter 1 of Romans when he says, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is what he's going to be teaching on the rest of Romans. For it is, or because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this gospel is the empowering. So Paul starts this, this switch in Romans. Romans switches in chapter 12 to start saying this is what we should do in response. He starts with, because of all the stuff I've covered before. You know, it's like having had all those math classes that you had to have so that when you get to advanced calculus on the first day, when the teacher says, do this, you go, I got it because I got all this before. Paul's saying, because of all of this before, now you can get what I'm saying here. See, God's, God's gospel, this gospel he's given us, is all sorts of things in our lives. It's God's love. It's his grace. It's his righteousness. It's his gift of faith. All of these are laid out there for us. So Romans 12 is a call to action, saying, I've explained the gospel, now let's do something with it. And you look at it and you say, okay, well, I get that, yeah, the therefore, but I don't see gospel here. Well, it's actually in the next bit when it says, by the mercies of God. That's a Hebraism, which means it's a, a summary of a bigger statement. It means all the ways that you could possibly think of in which God is merciful. And God's mercy is what the gospel is. God's mercy is don't punish the humans for their sins. Instead, punish the Son of God for their sins. See, we worship God not because we're scared he's going to get us. We're not worshiping God because we're fearful of his wrath. We understand without Christ, the wrath is fully poured out on us. But with Christ, he takes the wrath in our place. We understand that. So we as Christians, we recognize that, but we don't live fearing his wrath. Instead, we live dwelling and relishing in his compassion, in his mercy for us. And this is the starting place on which we go because praise be to God, he sees us this way. He sees us in light of Christ, not in light of who we are. The gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable, undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, in justifying them freely, in sending his life-giving spirit, and in making him his children. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that we see here. Notice it says, present your bodies. This means to stand before the Lord. And then it says, as living sacrifices. Now this is an interesting kind of turn of phrase. Living sacrifices. They would have obviously thought about the sacrifices that took place every day in the temple. 
They would have thought about the yearly sacrifice that went for everyone's sins. And these sacrifices were not kept. It wasn't a zoo at the temple. They didn't just donate them to the temple and they had a, a lamb section and a dove section. No, they were killed and their blood was running off of the altar. And many times they were burned as well. So this is a weird thing, saying a living dead thing. A living dead thing. A living thing that you give up and let it die. Kind of sounds like elsewhere in the Bible where it says, take up your cross daily and follow the Lord. Poet George MacDonald said, if we do not die to ourselves, we cannot live to God. And he that does not live to God is in fact dead. So this is that, that picture that we have here is in view of what God has done through the gospel, through the sending of his son, we are going to offer our bodies as alive sacrifices, as continually sacrificing. And praise be to God, we don't actually have to die for our sins. Christ already did that. And so we are allowed to live even though we are dead. I love this. It says, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. That word acceptable is the word pleasing. We can please God this way. We can please God through our worship. Our worship is not what we do before the pastor gets up and talks to you. Our worship is what we do throughout our lives. Worship is what you devote yourself to. This is your spiritual act of devotion. This is your spiritual act of adoration. This is your spiritual act of love. We do this as living sacrifices. We need to desire and want him more. But don't miss the gospel behind this. As we get, begin to look at all these things it tells us to do, don't miss out the fact that we first have God's grace, his empowering spirit to then lead us into this place. So even as I get up here and I say, we need to worship God better, we need to desire God more. This is not a do more, try harder. This is a ask the spirit for more of himself, more of the spirit poured out into us. You still got to take the steps forward, but the power and the strength comes through his indwelling spirit. So that's how God relates to us. And praise be to God that we get to start there. Because if we started in the next part of how we're to interact with each other, it becomes a works-based religion. This is a grace-based religion. So part two, how we relate to God and to others. Now our covenant goes out of order and so we're going to jump around here in Romans 12 a little bit. I'll ask the Apostle Paul for forgiveness when we get to heaven. But we're going to follow the covenant just so it kind of flows logically. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This idea of conformed, this word means to wear a mask. It means to have an outward expression that doesn't match an inward change. It implies that Paul's readers are already doing this. They are trying to look exactly like the world, but believing that they're changed on the inside. Spurgeon writes, nothing worse can happen to a church than to be conformed to the world. Notice it says, do not be conformed. Do not look like and be like the world. Instead, be transformed. This is the word metamorphosis. This is the word that we've chosen to use for what happens to a butterfly when it goes from the caterpillar to a butterfly. If you weren't a scientist and you watched this happen, you would have never guessed that that little teeny green grubby thing would become this beautiful flying thing. What Paul's saying is don't take the fact that you're this beautiful reborn thing and want to go back to what you were before. See, there's two ways the world looks at things, God's way or the world's way. 
There's no in-between. Spurgeon again writes, Never dream that you can be pardoned and then allowed to live as you did before. The very wish to live as you did before is evidence that you're still under condemnation. So think about that. If you're that butterfly and you're longing to go back to being this little grub, this little crawling on your belly in the dirt thing, in Spurgeon's mind, that means you never became the butterfly. And so this this picture here is do not be conformed to this world, but allow God to transform you. Philip's translation says it this way. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but instead allow God to mold you from within. And I love that picture. I love that idea of we are to be molded by God. Again, this is not a try harder and do it on your own. It's you've got to be willing and open to let the Lord do this in you. But God's word is clear. We need each other, and we need his word to be able to do this. That's the molding that we need. You know, as we finish up the month of August, I know Bible studies and life groups are getting back together. Get into that. Push into that. Lean into that. Be in a group so that you can be molded together with other believers. That way we can grow in our walk with the Lord. And then look what it says. It says that you may be able to discern God's will. Isn't that what we all want to know? We want to know what God's thinking and what his plan is for our life. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Good is, is pretty self-explanatory. Acceptable means pleasing. Perfect means complete or whole. And these words are all borrowed from the Old Testament. But the idea here is not just to have our doctrine right or our theology right. It's to have a right relationship with God. See, he is the result. He is the one that we want. And this is that mortification of sin. We say, I'm not going to look like the world. I'm going to kill that in me, and I'm going to turn to Christ and let him mold me. Now, as with anything, any kind of sin, we have horizontal. How do we interact with each other? We're going to skip down to verse 9 now and finish 9 through 16. Now, notice as we go through this, this section is all other-focused. It's all completely horizontal. It's love. It's hating things that hurt others. There are so many one another, one another. Take care. Show hospitality. You can't show hospitality if you're by yourself. It doesn't work that way. can't be hospitable to yourself. You have to be hospitable to others. So this entire section is all about now what do we do in light of the gospel, in light of how God sees us, in light of the mortification of sin, what does that mean for our interactions together? Here's what it says. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What's interesting here is this is Paul saying this is how we're going to get out into the world and how we're going to change things. And Paul does this throughout his books. Notice what's not there. It doesn't say we need to get our person elected into the White House. It doesn't say we need to change the laws. It doesn't say if only we had more celebrities that were Christian, we could change everything. Instead, it's from the bottom up. That the world is to be changed from the bottom up. J.R.R. Tolkien got this. If you've ever read any of his work, you know that he always chooses the small people, the hobbits, to do the amazing things. As a matter of fact, in The Hobbit, 
Gandalf says, Sauron, the, the, the wizard who sold himself out to the bad guy, believes that only great power will hold evil in check. That's not what I've found, said Gandalf. I've found that it's the small things, the everyday deeds from ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love. I mean, you think about this. Paul's saying, if we have love towards each other, that is the real deal. If we outdo one another in showing honor, no, I'm going to honor you more. No, I'm going to honor you more. If we're going to rejoice in hope, be patient, show hospitality, it seems like not a big deal. But when we look at how twisted the world is, I mean, the world is the exact opposite of this. The love is fake. They love what is evil. They hold fast to what is bad. They don't love each other with brotherly affection. It's brotherly hate. And so Paul says, this is the way we're to be. And notice, it's all based on who Christ is. This entire section is describing Christ. It's describing what we look like when we're in Christ, when the Spirit's indwelling us. And the remainder of this text is to talk about what pleases God. Notice that if we looked like this as a church, we would be a little way station of heaven. It would look like a little version of heaven. Yeah, we'd still, have, we'd still have crying and we'd still have death and we'd still have mourning and there still would be the constant things that are not a part of heaven. But we would have attitudes that look like what it will be like when we're redeemed. What a great place to be. This word genuine, this genuine love is not gutting it out and just doing it. Instead, it comes from what we saw in Romans 5.5, where Paul says, because God's love has been poured out in you, overflow with that love. See, again, what a sweet deal on our part is that God loves us more and more so that we can overflow and spill out onto those around us with his love. This word genuine is the word ahippokratos, or ahippocrite. In Greek, when you put the, word a, the letter A in front of a word, it means without or opposite. That's why atheism means without theism, without God. This means without hypocrisy. It means not acting. It's who you are on the inside is who you are on the outside. It's all consistent. See, love is not meant to be theater. It belongs in the real world. This idea of love and hypocrisy are total opposites. And the gospel says we're to be consistent all the way through. See, we're loved not because we're lovable or because we've made ourselves lovable. We are loved because Jesus died for us, taking the unattractive and making it attractive, taking the unlovely and making it lovely, taking the dirty and filthy and cleaning it. See, you don't have to become clean and lovely for Jesus to love you. He loves you and he makes you that way which is the essence of the gospel. I told you I was going to be repeating it over and over again. If Christians were to think this way, if we were to think this way, not only about our relationships here inside the church building, but also outside the church, then serving people that are unattractive, and I'm not talking about their faces, I'm talking about there's nothing that makes you want to be near them. If we started remembering that, we started remembering this gospel, we would say things like, oh Lord, I was so much more unattractive to you than this person is to me. 
In fact, you were tortured and killed and gave up your life for me. And I was way worse than this person. And all I need to do is put up with them while I'm working with them. Put up with them while I'm standing in line with them. Put up with them while we have this meeting. Put up with them on Sunday mornings. All of that changes. Because when we live this way in Christ, when we understand the gospel this way, it changes how we interact with others. Paul goes on. He loves lists. He continues. He says, hate evil. I love that he starts with love must be genuine and hate what is evil. We're allowed to hate, but it should be hating of evil thing, not people, not anything to do with God's created people. Notice it says grasp good. It means to grab onto. We are to love people so much that we're to hate everything that would hurt them, to cling to what is good. Then it says love brotherly. This is the word where we get Philadelphia from. It means brotherly love. This means we're to love each other as if we were all one big family. We're to show honor. It's not just mutual love, but also honor. That changes exactly how we talk about people, doesn't it? If we're, th- if we're trying to outdo someone in honor, it means we're going to talk about them like they're right there with us in a good way. Be zealous, which means glowing, fervent, and serving the Lord. We're to be a a glowing pot that is bubbling over with all the things that God has put in us. Rejoice in hope. Be patient and constant in prayer. See, we are to be rejoicing in the fact that we have a hope, that this is not the end, that there is more to come. Contribute to the needs of others means to share what you have. And then finally, hospitality. This is a fun word in the Greek. Just like Philadelphia means love of brothers, this is philoxenia, which means love of aliens, love of strangers, love of those different than you. And notice it says, it says practice and pursue this, not just, you know, be for hospitality. It's to pursue it and go after it. See, ultimately, this picture is a picture of Christ. This is to encourage us. This this describes Jesus. See, Jesus lived how we should live in response to the gospel because he is the gospel. And as he's walking through his life, he is showing us this is what it looks like to live in light of what I'm doing. This love should be genuine. It should be compassionate towards others. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So he continues. He says, bless those who want you gone. Bless those who don't want you around. Bless instead of curse. How anti-worldly is this? That the people that hate you the most are the ones you're to bless. You're the ones to spend time caring for them. Then it says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is a green light for us as believers to feel what other believers are feeling, to even feel what people who are not believers are feeling. It's okay to rejoice with people and be happy for them. It's also okay to sit and cry with them. We are allowed to hurt with others. Live in harmony. Literally, think the same things as others. So the idea here is because of verse 2 says we've now transformed our minds, all of our minds are similar, so guess what? We should be living in harmony together. Without this common mind, common mindset, there's no harmony to be offered. And I love how he follows right up with that harmony because he knows how humans work. 
We try for harmony, but sometimes we think our way is better than someone else's or vice versa. And he says, do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Have this mindset that was in Christ, which is Jesus went to everybody. It didn't matter if they were the top or the bottom. He went to them. Most of the time it was the bottom. So we are to be that way. We are to reach out to the rejects. So we've seen how God views us, what our relationship to others and to God should be, and now how do we view ourselves? We're going to go back up to verse 3. For the by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what Paul's doing here is he's saying, don't think too highly of yourselves, but also don't think too lowly of yourself. But not too high. He starts right off. He says, do not think more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment. He wants to remember that just moments before in Romans 11.35, he says, you cannot earn this grace. You cannot earn this favor of the Lord. So don't think that, oh, well, God loved me because I'm just the best of the best. He's saying, no, you're not the best of the best. You excel at trying to out the people sitting right next to you right now. That's your excellence. It's not your excellence that you're the best, so I'm coming for you. This idea of sober judgment just means sound. He's saying, recognizing that we are nothing, 1 Peter 5, 5, we are nothing, and yet God loved us in spite of it. This faith in Christ, when it's in the right direction, leads to humility. It's not about how much faith I have. It's not about the works I've done. It's about the one who died for me. Many members, literally that means limbs. So it's saying we are a part of a body. And instead of thinking about, well, my body part's better than yours, you know, that would be like your spleen and your kidneys arguing what's more important. The whole while the head's going, well, I'm the one that's most important. Arguing between the body parts doesn't do any good. So we're not to think too highly of ourselves. We're also not to think too lowly of ourselves. Some would say, well, you know, we're Americans. We definitely think too highly of ourselves. The lowly thing is not an issue. But let me say, in the church, it is. Because we look around and we say, well, so-and-so has that gift, and I don't have it, so I'm of no use, so I'm not going to use anything. This verse, these verses do not let us do that. These verses say, everybody has a gift. The only bad gift is the gift that's not used. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The word gift and the word grace are the same root, meaning they're both free. They're both things that are given to us. Paul wants us to understand that not only is our salvation free, but the gifts that God has given us is free. Imagine if God, like this, this grace that we've been given to us, this salvation, we are given the salvation, it's a free gift, and we decide not to use it. We decide to keep it wrapped up and we set it aside and we say, eh, I'll just, maybe I'll use it at some point in my life. We would go, what is your problem? That's salvation. That's relationship with God. There's so much there. The same word is used for the gift that he has given us, the many gifts that everybody in this room has. And yet we treat that 
like that salvation analogy I just said, where we say, well, I have gifts, but I'm not going to use them. They're not as good as so-and-so's. Or, or maybe my gift's not out there in front. Instead, we all have gifts given to us according to grace. Christ's body. We are a part of the body. The gifts that we have is like part of your body taking a break and not contributing. Our bodies do that because we're fallen and we're in need of new bodies. Parts of our bodies stop working and it's unhealthy. Same thing goes for churches. We need to be continually working together. Now, some of these gifts will be public. We see them right here. Prophecy, teaching, exhorting. Those are up in front of people. But the rest of them, the other four, are all behind the scenes. Serving, contributing, leading, showing mercy. You know, the, the, these chairs don't clean themselves. These floors don't clean themselves. The coffee doesn't magically appear. There's people serving behind the scenes. And many of us don't even know who they are. We don't know what's going on. That's the kind of serving that we're to have. We're to serve in whatever gifts we have. His list, prophecy, means preaching. Doesn't mean telling the future, necessarily. Service and teaching. Exhorting means to encourage others to follow God. Contributing, leading, acts of mercy. These are all gifts that we are to use. So how do I know what gift I have? Well, the first thing I have to recognize is that I have been given plenty of gifts. I have been given lots of gifts. Recognizing and going to the Lord and saying, Lord, thank you for the many gifts you've given me is the, is the first step. Because ultimately, if I don't recognize that the Lord has given me gifts, then how am I going to see what gifts I have? It's by the grace of God and the indwelling of the Spirit that these gifts go to work. Second thing we see is that for many people, you're already using your gifts. You're already using your gifts. Most likely, you think your gifts aren't that important. And so you don't want to use them for God's church. But he gave you those gifts for here, right here, right now. Now, it may not be that you're working in this building. Maybe it's ministering to people outside the church who are a part of this church. But your gifts are a part of it. See, when we choose elders here at New Life, it's not like we go to someone and go, we think you'd make a good elder. Let's give you a title and now you can start doing it. Instead, the guy's already doing it. All we've done is came and give him a label. That's all that is. And that's the same thing here. You already know what your gifts are. You don't need a strengths finder. You don't need a spiritual gift inventory. You already know what your gifts are. Begin ministering those gifts to the church. And third, we need to recognize that all the gifts we have, all the gifts we have embody who Jesus Christ is. The body will resemble the head. The more we are renewed by the transforming of our minds, the more we look like Christ, the more we can use our gifts and use them clearly. See, we're not meant to be spectators here in our churches, but we're meant to be participants with Christ. He gives us all of these gifts to make a difference, to be a part of the body. So our covenant is here for a reason. Our covenant is here to remind us of this. If you're a member, you agreed to this. You, you signed this. You said, this is what I'm going to do. If you're not a member and you're just here, a regular attender or visiting, you get, the, you get the fruit of what the members have agreed to. And I encourage you to join in. Become part. I mean, look at this picture. Love that is sincere. I mean, that right there should get you in the door discerning, affectionate, and respectful love. It is love that is enthusiastic and patient with each other. It is generous and hospitable. 
benevolent and sympathetic. It is marked by harmony and humility. Christian churches would be happier communities if we all loved like that. What a place to be. So here's our promise one more time. We promise by God's grace and through the indwelling of the presence of the Holy Spirit to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of our sin and walking by faith in the newness of life. Wouldn't it be beautiful if that's what new life was known for? Wouldn't it be beautiful that our church looked like that? This won't happen by accident. It happens by first embracing the gospel and then living out all the truths of the gospel in your life. This is the goal of what we're doing here at New Life, to walk in the newness of life, to repent of sins, and to stay in step with the keeping in the God, stay in step with the gospel. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. Lord, thank you for this, this passage that you gave your servant Paul that we now can be blessed by. Lord, there's a lot here that we need to hear. And Lord, I pray that where my words were short, that your spirit would fill in the many, many gaps, Lord. Lord, we need more of you. We need to be a people that is filled with your spirit, loving each other, repenting of sins, and walking in the newness of life. But Lord, you didn't leave us alone to do this on our own. We have each other, but more importantly, we have you living in us. So I pray that we would live in that. Help us to do that right here and right now. In your name, amen.